0: All right, we are moving now to uh, our sermon scripture and the sermon itself. We are doing a series on the life of Abram, uh, soon to be known as Abraham, not in today's uh, passage, but soon. And uh, the reason we're studying him, I mean, one, it's part of the Bible, therefore it's helpful to us. It'll, it'll encourage us. It'll, it'll show us things. But also because in, in the, the letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, he calls Abraham the father of everyone who believes, which means that in, in Abram's ups and downs, and today is more of a down than an up. Um, what we'll notice is, is how to live the life of faith, what it means to believe in God in, in good times and in hard times. This morning we are in Genesis chapter 16. I'm going to read the entirety of that passage to you, 16 verses, and then we'll jump into the sermon together. This is Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roah. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to be studying this together over the next uh, little while here. In the year 204, or 1800 years or so, uh, a treatise was published about a single Christian virtue. It's actually the first piece of writing, at least known to me, or that this is the the facts I read. The first piece of writing we have where a theologian expounds only on a single Christian virtue. So here's today's trivia question. What do you think he wrote about? The Roman Empire was roiling and expanding. Christians were persecuted but growing. The world was very tumultuous. I mean, in other places, China apparently had just invaded North Korea. If you were a church leader in 204, what would you write about? Would you write about love, joy, peace, faithfulness, steadfastness under persecution? Would you write about heaven? the end of things. Well, Tertullian, who was an African church leader in a city called Carthage, he wrote a treatise on patience. Of all the things he could have written about, of all the topics he could have chosen to encourage the Christians around him, he chose patience. In his city, and really in all the Roman Empire, patience was not seen as a virtue. It was not something people attempted to cultivate. Patience was something forced upon slaves, upon children, and and people of the lower class. Patience was an attitude for those who had to wait. The powerless, the poverty-stricken, and so on. Patience was the province of those who could not make their own choices, who could not define their own lives. In short, they believed patience uh, was inevitable. It wasn't a virtue. But Tertullian turns cultural thinking on its head. He told the people, patience has nothing to do with your station in life or, or your social status, your wealth, your gender, anything like that. Rather, patience is rooted in the very character of God. Because God is a patient God. God uh, loves just and unjust. He sends the rain and the sun on, on good people and on evil people. He creates a, a beautiful world to share with every single one of his creatures. And when God entered the world and lived 33 years ago, uh, th- 33 years or so, he died and was resurrected. And now his people are called to live with God like patience. Because they have hope uh, in that, that God is in control of all things, including life and death. You see, Tertullian wrote to people, uh, the people of God in an impatient age, when waiting was weakness, when a long-term trust in God signaled frailty. Now, you know as well as I that we too live in an impatient age. Has waiting ever been as annoying, you know, as it is now? We hate lines. We we hate old technology, you know, the spinning rainbow wheel of death if you're a Mac user or whatever. We we hate more than two-day shipping. You know, uh, who ever told you, like, hey, I'm trying to get more patient. You know, who among us is like, I'm, I'm really trying to become a better waiter? But here's the problem. Tertullian was right and that patience is godlike. It's one of the virtues producing Christians by the work of God in their hearts. If you are to live a life of faith, you have to learn and grow in patience. You must become a better waiter. Now, if, if you are like me, you may at this point grumpily note that the last 16 months has been nothing but waiting, nothing but a form of patience. But let's leave that aside for a moment. As you're going to see in today's story, a lack of patience, a failure to wait, an inability to trust God led to dire consequences for Abram and Sarai and for some of the people around them. No sooner, if you heard it last week, no sooner had Abram been guaranteed the land and an heir than he and Sarai chart a path away from faith and they end up wounding themselves and others with their failure to be patient. Impatience has dire consequences. Yet we're also going to talk about God, the God who works, the God who's faithful and patient and kind, despite the foolishness of the people that he's engaged with. So we have two parts to today's sermon. First, the faithlessness of impatience. And second, the faithful and patient God. Now, if you... Uh, if you dumped all of Genesis into a Word document and took out all the chapter and verse references, there would feel like a very abrupt transition between Genesis 15 and Genesis 16. Because Genesis 15, it's one of the high points of the entire Old Testament, probably in the, in the top five or whatever. It's this massively important covenant between God and Abram. It, it sort of, again, promises Abram his own son and land for his people. It foreshadows Jesus in extremely significant ways. And then all of a sudden in verse sixteen, or chapter sixteen, verse one, the text says, Now, as if to like signal a little transition, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. This has been a continual problem that Abram and Sarai have lived with ever since God had begun promising things uh, to them, that the promises don't come to pass at the speed they want. We've heard this story before. This is especially borne out by Sarai's theological comment in verse two, that it's God himself who has been preventing her from bearing children. Let's pause on that verse for a second. Is Sarai right? Is God at fault? I mean, it's an important question for this, for this text, for what's going on in this story, but it's an important question for all of us as well. Is it God's fault when a person cannot have children? I think we'd say yes and no. It's a classic pastor answer. I apologize for that, but no... Because childlessness, the inability to conceive, the inability to bear children, that's not the way that God designed the world to work. Reproductive systems, they're supposed to function correctly. That's how God created us. So in some ways, no, that's not the way that God had designed things. But in another way, yes, God is responsible because of what we call providence. And providence means that God controls all things, the whole world, the the whole cosmos, through either primary or secondary causes. A primary cause is a, a direct action by God. Whereas a secondary cause would be God using natural means to accomplish his will. And so God uses both primary and secondary causes in in his administration of the world. Secondary causes by far, by far being the most common way he works. So listen, we don't know why Sarai couldn't conceive. It was likely, though, a secondary cause. It was likely a medical issue of some kind. And secondary causes are not outside of God's control. And therefore... The responsibility is sort of there. God does not and cannot do evil, of course. Yet the brokenness of creation that results in childless—it's—it's it's under His gaze. It's under His authority. And also a few chapters from now, when Sarai does conceive, it says there that God opened her womb. So perhaps a primary action, or perhaps you know something gets sorted out. But all this to say, we can say Sarah is partially right when she says the Lord has prevented her from having children. But her tone seems bitter. And we'll hear more from Sarai in the chapters to come, not, not so much today. I'll also point out, though, while we're kind of on this topic, throughout Genesis, throughout the scriptures, we are invited to bring our requests to God, including our desire for children. Childlessness, that's something we can and should pray about, no matter the cause of the childlessness. But anyways, Sarah has an Egyptian female servant named Hagar, and Sarai has this idea that if Abram can marry and sleep with Hagar and conceive a child with her, that would count because the promise was made to Abram, right? Wasn't it? This plan sounds strange to our ears, but let me, let me kind of explain. This isn't strictly a case of, of polygamy of multiple wives, which I will cover in just a, a second. Rather, there are sort of these well-attested social customs, this is outside of the Bible, not, not Bible evidence, other evidence from the ancient Near East, where when the matriarch of a tribe couldn't bear children, uh, they would often take a servant or a slave, some other woman in the tribe. And, and, and she would kind of conceive on the matriarch's behalf, and the child is sort of treated as the matriarch's uh, child. It's a kind of surrogacy. The birth mother kind of stays involved, uh, but the child wasn't totally hers. Now, this is obviously sounds very foreign to us. We don't, we don't do this anymore. But it was in that day, before they had a lot of medical interventions. It was a common way of perpetuating the line of the tribal chief, you know, of, of the guy who's in charge. The patriarch is the most important. And so Sarai's idea, she didn't just make it up. It came from sort of the area around them this was happening. Now, the text does say that Abram took, Abram took Hagar to be his wife. That's right there at the end of verse 3. And even though she doesn't attain the same status as Sarai, she's sort of some sort of second lesser wife, um, and she gets demoted from her post later on in the story. I do think we should talk for a moment about polygamy and how the Bible and God speak about this issue. And I bet this a sidebar about polygamy wasn't exactly what you were expecting when you, you know, tuned in this morning, but here, here we go anyways. Polygamy basically means to have more than one spouse. And if you read this narrative closely, polygamy, the marrying of Hagar by Abram, it's never explicitly condemned. God doesn't come to Abram and be like, hey, you shouldn't have done that. Uh, and actually, if you were going to read the whole Old Testament closely, there are no explicit laws against it, against it either. Now, I know you're thinking, what about adultery? Well, adultery is having sex with someone who you're not married to. Polygamy, you're technically married to the person, so that that doesn't count. The only citation we have about polygamy is when God gives instructions to kings, he tells them uh, not to take multiple wives. So we have no law that says, you know, one wife only or one husband only. Now, This does change in the New Testament, where both Jesus and the apostles explicitly command the the one wife, one husband, two people max uh, model. And even though it's not commanded against in the Old Testament, I think you can make an argument that one wife, one husband is what God expects from his people, even in the Old Testament. The way you make that argument is sort of twofold. First, if you go to Genesis 2, when God brings Adam and Eve together, he sets the expectation that it's supposed to be one man and one woman. The model God presents to humanity for marriage the way he instructs Adam and Eve to sort of function is to have one of each that's the first part of the argument the second part of the argument is whenever and wherever we find polygamy in Genesis and it happens a number of times three or four or five times i think it always leads to trouble always every single time it never goes well it's never like well that was sort of a good a good relationship no it causes fights and divisions and divided families and bitterness and anger and all sorts of things and I think you could argue here that it leads to a young woman, or we presume Hagar is pretty young, we, we, it leads to a young woman being sexually misused or coerced. And the reason I say that is because when Abram agrees to Sarai's plan, again, if you look at the end of verse 3, it says Sarai gives Hagar to Abram. There's no consent. Hagar doesn't speak and say, yeah, I guess you know, I'm fine with this plan. She's treated like a slave who has no right to choose a spouse of her own. So anyway, so what do we make of polygamy in the Bible? Then how can we kind of summarize all these little little pieces? I think here, here's how I'd say it. God temporarily temporarily allows polygamy to occur, but it's never condoned, never encouraged. And, as, and when we get to Jesus in the New Testament, it's clear that all along God intended for marriage and sexual relationships to be one man and one woman. So at best, Abram and Sarai were being unwise and foolish. That's at best. <laughs> at worst, they were flagrantly evading what they knew God wanted them to do because they thought they knew better or because everyone else did it and there was no repercussions or whatever. The whole thing is morally complicated. Sort of like Abram and Sarah in Egypt. Remember, I think it was the, the, the second sermon in, in our series or whatever, and they pretended not to be married, and that created a whole mess. This is sort of the same thing. But it actually gets worse. <laughs> it's because Abram, go, you know, they, they get married, takes her as his wife. She, he goes into Hagar. She conceives. And once she has conceived, she begins to look with contempt on Sarai. That word contempt in the Hebrew, it's kind of tricky to translate. It might mean that, that Hagar feels some sort of maternal pride. It might mean that she's sort of haughty and proud. It might mean that she's just being, being very mean uh, to Sarai. We're not exactly sure, but it isn't good. It might be understandable. Can understand why Hagar would feel that way, but she's in the wrong. Sarai appeals to Abram. She's saying, look at, look at how Hagar is treating me. Look at her behavior. And then if you look in, verse look in verse 5, she actually blames Abram for what has happened. Abram doesn't know what to do. Two wives is not better than one wife. You know, it's causing all kinds of problems. He, he's afraid. Maybe he's passive. But he tells Sarai, oh, your servant's in your power. Which means Abram has just flipped the power dynamic. Hagar has gotten demoted from second wife back to servant or whatever. She doesn't have privileged status in the household anymore. And now Sarai deals harshly with her. That is, she afflicts Hagar. That word afflict, that's the same word uh, that Exodus uses for slavery in Egypt. It's, it's, it's this very harsh word, this very, this very difficult word. And Hagar is so mistreated that she flees. The power flips, the afflicted one becomes the afflictor, and it just devolves. And we kind of have a mess. <laughs> we, have, we have this huge mess. We, we have a foolish decision. We have polygamy. We have a pregnant woman. We have infighting, contempt, harshness, and finally, a physical breakup of the family. What did we learn? Well, we, we learn two things. And the first is that sin begets sin. And beget, that's, that's an old word for saying sin causes more. Sin leads to more sin. Do you see how this is sort of a case of dominoes falling? It begins with maybe a foolish decision. You know, it's morally complicated, a, a bad decision, even if it had decent motives. And it leads to like four or five different sins. And the crazy thing is that each person, each link in the chain, I bet they felt entirely justified in their reaction because of how the previous person had treated them. I think it's likely that Abram feels justified to marry and sleep with Hagar because God hadn't come through with the promise of a child of his own. I bet Hagar felt justified to be contemptuous towards her mistress because she's been coerced into this relationship and now she's pregnant. Sarah likely feels justified in her anger towards Abram. You know, you, you got us into this mess. And her harshness towards Hagar, because Hagar was looking down on her and mistreating her. And Hagar likely feels justified in abandoning the family because of how she was treated. Everyone points the finger of blame somewhere else. And this is how sin has been since the start of time. When Adam and Eve fell into sin in the garden and God shows up like, hey, what happened? Adam's like, her fault. (laughs) The woman that you put here with me, Eve, she made me do it. And he's like, no, 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 not my fault. It's a serpent, actually, God, that you put here. She bl- they both try to blame God. Everyone points the finger of blame somewhere else. One of the things you learn in counseling, I mean, you can learn in any place, I suppose, but it, yeah, I, I learned it first in counseling, is to stop passing blame. See, for instance, as, as a parent, it's really easy to say, my kids are making me angry. It, it was my kids, they, they acted up, and that made me angry, and that's why I punched a wall or, or, you know, or whatever I did. And that's not exactly true. I mean, your kids were involved, but you punched the wall because you were angry. No one made you do anything. See, faith, repentance, growth, this all begins when we stop pointing the finger at someone who, who made us do something and realize that, that we have work to do. What if you could acknowledge to yourself, not, not they, those people made me angry, but, but I'm an angry person sometimes. Or not that, that she or he made me, made me lust, but I, I'm a lustful person sometimes. Not she afflicted me and therefore I'm going to make her life miserable. No, no, no. See, sin, if it's left unchecked, if it's left unconfessed, it tends to only give birth to more sin. The only way the cycle stops is if someone takes responsibility. Say, hey, look, this, this part belongs to me. So, of course, your kids or your spouse or your boss or your Hagar or whatever, they, they were part of the difficulty. But the responsibility is your own. And when we fail to own our own sin, we perpetuate cycles of sin and hurt. And that's what, exactly what happens here. That sin leads to sin leads to sin. And all these dominoes just keep falling. The second thing we learn is that a failure of patience is at the root of many kinds of sin. Abram and Sarai, they get into trouble. Because they can't wait on God. Remember, God clearly promised them a child, yet it wasn't com- coming. And if you look at the final verse of this chapter, it says Abram's 86 when Ishmael is born. So this drama is happening when Abram's, a, and is it octogenarian? Is that the right word? He's 85. And Sarai, according to other passages, was about 10 years younger than Abram, putting her around 75, 76. It's likely she's well into menopause. And they had longer lifespans than according to the biblical record. But it's, and I think it's quite likely, and lots of commentators agree with me or me with them, whatever, that it, it, it is the presence of menopause that elicits Sarai's statement in verse two, that the Lord has prevented her. She just knows there's, there's no longer any chance. Like I've hit this, you know, this stage of life where I, I, can't, I can't have children. But they hit, they, they hit this point in their lives and they decide, I can't wait any longer and I'm going to take things into my own hands. The text glosses over this point, but I think verses 1 and 2 hold incredible pain for Sarai and Abram. I think there's a lot of hurt underneath those verses. Because for those of you who have childlessness as part of your story, you understand that it's not a one-time thing that you sort of go through once and then you're, you're kind of over it. No, no, it's a month-by-month month reminder, every, or week-by-week week even, but every month you don't conceive, every month of disappointment, every time someone else in your life gets pregnant and you don't, every time that a pregnancy starts but doesn't finish and sex becomes a chore, and there's, there's just all these things. Childlessness is this, this ongoing drumbeat of physical and emotional and spiritual pain. And I think verses 1 through 2 hold a lot of hurt. And what is more, Abram and Sarai, they actually had the promise of of a child. And all all the modern people who are struggling with childless, they don't have that promise. You live with the uncertainty. You don't know what, what will happen. And Abram and Sarai give up even though they have the promise. Maybe how much harder it is for those of you who struggle in the face of uncertainty. But Abram and Sarai cannot wait. They cannot be patient any longer. The drumbeat of pain from childlessness, I think it wears them down and it leads them to foolishness. And the foolishness, you know, leads to all kinds of sin. My friends, I want to warn you in love that childlessness still carries with it difficult choices. The options that open to you um, are, are very difficult to navigate from a spiritual and a moral perspective. Let me just give you a few quick examples. Um, IVF, in vitro fertilization. It's one of the most common routes that many couples take uh, when they can't have uh, a child. Uh, they, they, that involves harvesting 10 to 20 eggs from a woman and fertilizing them. Now, sometimes in the fertilization process, some of them don't take or, or don't work or whatever, but nearly always in IVF, you're left with multiple potentially viable embryos. Now, sometimes they get all used up in the, the course of trying to implant them and all that kind of stuff, but a Christian couple should think about What to do if they get pregnant with the first embryo? And there's eight or ten of them left over. Historically, biblically, Christians believe that life starts at conception. And so IVF has moral difficulties and decisions for Christians. The same is true for surrogacy. The same is true for using another person's egg or sperm or whatever. I'm not saying the answers are easy. In fact, I'm not even sure what what I would tell you if you asked me. I'm just saying approach these things with a great deal of thought and prayer and caution. These are not simple decisions. And of course, myself, one of the other elders, we'd be glad to think and pray with you about these things. All I'm saying is, childlessness can wear you down. And it can make you desperate. And what we see in Abram and Sarah is that when, when humans try to take things into their own hands and say, I don't like God's timing, I'm, I'm going to do something on my own, it, it, they get led astray. And Tertullian warned us about this thousands of years ago. He said, patience is at the heart of being a Christian. Because ultimately, patience signals trusting God. It marks you out as a person who does not run ahead of God's plan. Look, I'm not saying you have to wait forever. I'm I'm saying there's always a degree of trust involved in a life of faith. Okay, part two. I know that was long, but I had a lot of things to say there. Part two, let's talk about the faithful and patient God. Sarai has dealt harshly with Hagar. Hagar flees south in the wilderness towards Shur. That's kind of on the way to the Egyptian border, we think. Anyways, um, that's verse 7. And the text says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness. Angel of the Lord. That means, at the very least, a personal agent. Of God being sent on a mission for God. This might be the second person of the Trinity. We we don't know. Hagar sort of refers to the angel as as a deity. I think it's probably more likely this is the chief angel. Gabriel's often sent on these kinds of missions to to speak the words of God to people. He's the one who shows up to Mary and, and, and other places. But nevertheless, I think it's striking to consider that in John 4, God's representative, in that case Jesus, He also meets a dishonored woman by a well in the desert to bless her. Very, very similar. Here the angel of the Lord meets Hagar, a a dishonored, a a mistreated woman, by a well, by a spring in the wilderness to speak words of life to her. But before he does that, he confronts her. Do you see him ask in verse 8, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? By, By calling Hagar the servant of Sarai, he confirms Hagar's place in the household. It was not right for her to be taken and used as a wife by Abram. It was not right that she had to flee to protect herself. The angel tells her, you need to return to your mistress and submit to her. So Hagar's not doing right by running away, even though she was being treated harshly. And actually, just for the record, in subsequent chapters, Hagar does get permission uh, from God to leave. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're in, in an abusive situation or, or someone in your household is being violent to you that, you that you have to stay. That's not the point. Sarah and Abram, they owe Hagar protection. But neither is it right for her just to simply abandon the place that God had called her to, at least for that point of her life. But notice, it's not just a confrontation. The angel then blesses and comforts Hagar. A couple ways this comes out. First, do you notice he calls Hagar by name? That's the only time in the whole Old Testament that a woman is named by an angel. It's actually an extraordinary honor that she gets. Second, the angel promises her, when you go back, when you go back God will protect you. We know this because he says, hey, in, in verse 10, God's going to multiply your offspring. There's going to be so many of them, they can't even count them. That's actually strikingly similar when you remember Abram's promise to what was promised him. Hagar basically gets the same thing. Even though her descendants are not part of God's chosen people, they are still going to be protected. They're still going to grow into this huge multitude, their own nation. God will protect her so that her child will grow and thrive. And third, remember how God told her to return to her difficult situation. If you look down at verse 11, when the angel tells her that she will bear a son and his name will be Ishmael, if you have a Bible, like a Bible with like those little footnotes, those little tiny letters or, or numbers that you can click on, um, often they'll tell you that Ishmael's name means God hears. God hears. The reason the angel told her to name her son Ishmael is because God heard her. In the midst of her affliction, in the midst of all all, all the difficulty, her affliction and her cries, they did not go unnoticed, but they were heard, even if they were ignored by Sarai and Abram. Hagar, despite being in this extremely difficult spot, gets named by an angel, is promised protection and descendants, and is reassured that God hears her. In other words, God promises her I will be faithful to you, even though the present is pretty dark. And Hagar responds to the angel's message. She actually gives God a name. Did you see that in verse 13? Uh, she says, You're the God who sees. And then God said, He was the God who hears. And she's like, No, no, you're also the God who sees. And then in verse 13, the well is named the same thing. Basically, the well of the seeing one, the well of the one who sees. She sort of names the place after it all. And then she returns home, and it all happens. The text tells us, as the angel foretold a son was born he was named ishmael now here's what i want you to see just one thing the story of the scriptures is a story of a god who hears and sees and i think you can you can feel that i think you can take that as a warning and as a comfort a god who hears and sees that's that's a warning because it tells something it tells us something about our sin That God sees and hears all. There's nothing that escapes his gaze or his hearing. He is aware. There's nothing that we confess to him that he does not already know. Uh, We are never surprising him. He saw Hagar not just in the wilderness, but he saw her as she despised and was contemptuous towards Sarai. He saw Hagar as she was afflicted. And he sees us too. He sees us at our good moments. But he also sees us in our weakness, in our sin. He sees us as we fail and get tripped up. And though that might feel terrifying and invasive, perhaps, I think it's actually a comfort. Because here's why. He sees and hears us and loves us in spite of everything we do. See, it's not just that God knows the good side of your life and loves you because of that. Like your next door neighbor who only really kind of sees you at your best, you know, once you're dressed up or whatever. No, no. He sees you. God sees you in your darkest moments. And loves you all the same. He sees you when you're profoundly envious of your neighbor's house or car or whatever. And he loves you. And he sees and he hears you in your deepest pain. And because this text has dealt with this issue of childlessness, please hear me. God sees and he knows. He sees it and he knows. He has heard it. He has heard your cries and he has promises for people. Did you know that? He has promises for people who are low and who are rejected and who are in trouble. Let me give you a couple quotes. Isaiah 61, verses 2 to 3. As Jesus begins his ministry, he quotes this to say, these are the things that are going to happen because of my ministry. This is what Jesus says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor and to comfort all who mourn and to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And then in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 3 to 4, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Look, we sometimes spiritualize these things, and they are partly spiritual, of course. But listen, the story in front of us this morning is a promise that to those of you who mourn, to those of you who are broken by your family situation, to those of you who sit in the ashes of your dreams, that in the rule and reign of Jesus, all of these things will be reversed. That's the promise. This is Jesus saying, I hear you, and I see you, and I'm intending to comfort you. It means that in the resurrection, or because of the resurrection of Jesus, at the end of all things, somehow all of our sadnesses will be turned inside out. Jesus promises, whatever life takes from you, the world to come, it'll be repaid in spades. You mourn now, you will be comforted. You sit in ashes now, you're going to get a beautiful headdress. I don't even know exactly what that means. But the Lord has listened to your affliction. You do not endure it alone. The God who's seen, he's seen your tears. The God who hears, he's heard all your prayers. Now listen. Sometimes like Hagar, or sometimes like Abram and Sarai, pardon me, you will get what you always longed for. Isaac will be born. The promise will be fulfilled. And sometimes like Hagar, you'll be sent back into the difficulty that you really, really wanted to escape. But it doesn't change the fact that God sees and hears. And Jesus is the proof of that. Jesus knows what it is like to mourn. Jesus knows what it is like to be poor in spirit. He knows what it's like to be spouseless and childless. He knows what, it, what, what life is like when it's cut off at a young age. He knows. So whatever you have going on in your life, whatever pain, whatever sin, or whatever joy, Jesus sees and hears, you can offer it to him. Leave behind your sin. Leave behind your foolishness. Come to him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. You are the God who sees. And the God who hears. And you see us in our sin. In all our foolishness and weakness. When we wish we could run away from our life. From all the damage that we've caused. All the way we've misused our tongues. And set things on fire. But you also see us in our affliction. And in our hurt. And you long to comfort us. So we just come to you. No matter matter what we're struggling with, no matter what's going on, we need you. We need more of you in our lives. We need to be remade like you. We We need the balm of your promises to soothe us. Please help us today. In Christ's name, amen.